With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when, and why we wear. We're fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. I have to say, April, I think you'll agree with me that we've been having such a fantastic time on Dressed thus far, and it's largely thanks to all of our fantastic listeners. Tons of fun. Thanks so much for your support. Yes, uh, we enjoy so, so, so much hearing from you guys. Um, we've been lots of emails. Um, we're starting to get a little bit of fan art, which is very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and and one of my favorite listener emails that we've gotten recently was from Dawn, um, who had listened to our Elizabeth Hawes episode and uh, emailed us to say that her husband, Chris, immensely enjoys wearing kilts. And he recognizes they are just simply more comfortable. So... Yay. Keep on rocking those kilts, Chris. Yeah. You're making Elizabeth Hawes very happy. And Katie Robertson, who sent us a wonderful picture of her adorable daughter, Emmy, wearing a dress de plastique. And it's actually something that Emmy herself designed for Earth Week at her school. So it's good to know that we have some budding fashion historians or designers out there. And um, I can actually track my love for history and fashion back to around the time that I was Emmy's age. Um, a couple different things inspired me, but one thing in particular was this video game, surprisingly. Where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Did you ever play it, April? I did not. Um, I think that sometimes you forget that I'm a, a little bit older than you, or quite a bit older than you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was probably sitting in an art history college class when no you way. were playing that video game. <laughs> So you're going to have to fill me in. I mean, I do know in general, like, okay. of the concept of Carmen Sandiego. But, like, what's the background? Yeah, it turned into a TV show, too, which was hilarious. But so Carmen Sandiego is a criminal, and she's one of many on this video game that you're supposed to be tracking down. But as a kid, I kind of ended up wanting to be her. First of all, she was a total badass. She had this red hat and matching trench coat, and she was really smart jumping throughout history and across continents. And it was my job to track her down. And in many ways, I think I am still actually looking for her. (laughs) Well, we did uh, talk about a few episodes ago about my fantasy alter ego, who is an international (laughs) couture thief. So it sounds like her and Carmen probably would have been friends, I'm guessing. (laughs) Um, But in terms of you and I, I guess, you know, we, we joke about this between ourselves that we are dress detectives. You know, kind of bringing you the answers to questions about clothing that we all wear that people maybe didn't even know you had a question about, right? I know. And today we get to do exactly that because I wonder how many of our listeners have bought into the current trend for bodysuits, also known as leotards, or better yet, who wore them in all their multicolored and sequined glory in the 80s? Raise your hand. (laughs) (laughs) Um, our listeners cannot tell, but I'm definitely raising my hand. And in fact, just this week, I wore a leotard under a very slouchy 80s style dress. Awesome. My hand is up too, because there's actually a very hilarious video out there that exists of a five-year-old Cassidy as a sheep in a pink leotard. Uh, And why were you dressed as a sheep? Inquiring minds need to know. (laughs) I don't know. It was, it was the kindergarten play. Ah. My best friend, Ashley. Oh, the boy who cried woof. Gotcha. That's what gotcha, it was. Gotcha. gotcha. Yep. Um, so I also, we want to, you know, we're talking about leotards, but we're also going to address this term 
um, in this episode, silhouette. Um, Silhouette can be known as both the outline of a dark figure against a light background and also as a descriptor for the shape of fashion for any given period of history. We're all quite fluent in the terminology that's used to describe the garments in our closets, but how many of us actually take the time to think twice about where these words come from? And the answers might surprise you. I mean, I love etymology. (laughs) Yeah, wasn't it Juliet who asks her Romeo, what's in a name? Of course. She says, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And... (laughs) That might be true, Juliet, but as the unfolding plot of Shakespeare's most famous tragedy reveals, the answer to your question is a bit more complicated. Just a little bit. Yeah, a lot can be in a name. A name, or any word for that matter, can be charged with a number of different meanings and connotations, be it a historic feud that ultimately drove a pair of star-crossed lovers to commit suicide, or a history of cultural appropriation. In our episode, Cashmere with a K, a few weeks back, we dealt into the incredibly complex and controversial history behind the introductions of the words cashmere and paisley into the English vocabulary. And today we get to learn the origin stories of two more, silhouette and leotard. But unlike cashmere and paisley, these two fashion terms were not originally places on a map, but men. That is correct. So... Just who were these guys, and how did they become part of the fashion lexicon? To find out, Cass and I put on our dress detective caps. Oh, we should make some. That'd be fun. I know. Very stylish. Um, And we headed back in history. So over 200 years ago, across the Atlantic, we're situating ourselves now in Limoges, France, where a boy named Etienne de Silhouette was born in 1709. And I just want to interject here that I love the name Etienne. I used to have an aquatic frog whose name was Etienne. Oh. And he lived a really long time. He lived to be like 10. Crazy. But back to the real Etienne. Yeah. Etienne's father, Chevalier Arnaud du Silhouette, was posted in the city as an administrator for the Bourbon monarchy. And when Etienne grew up, he followed in his father's footsteps by studying finance and economics. And he actually went on to spend a year in London studying the British economy, which he came to greatly admire. He admired it so much that he translated several British works on the subject into French. And his work became so well known that in 1759, at the age of 49, he was given the job of Controller General, the minister in charge of managing the French government's finances. So no small job. Yeah, I don't know if I would like to have all that pressure. (laughs) No. (laughs) Um, I actually read in one source that Madame de Pompadour, who was uh, Louis XV's favorite mistress, um, was in part responsible for getting Etienne this prestigious position. And the king at this time was very much in love with Madame de Pompadour. She was beautiful. She was intelligent and became a very highly valued advisor of his. Even after their love affair ended, she she Mm -hmm. still held a very high position at court, a lot of power. Um, So much sway that, in fact, she was actually given an official position as the 13th lady-in-waiting to the queen, who was her lover's wife. (laughs) Geek. (laughs) That might have been a little awkward, but I guess maybe not. Yeah, I mean, I think if you were a queen in Europe at this time, 
you knew that mistresses were just an expected part of your husband's life, whether you agreed with it or not, unfortunately. Yeah, you probably didn't have much say in the matter. No. (laughs) That said, Pompadour really was an incredible woman. She was a great patron of the arts and supported many of the philosophers of the Enlightenment. And she was oh so fashionable. But I digress. Um, So, yeah, Pompadour apparently knew Etienne either as a friend or perhaps she was an admirer of his work. Um, But it's said that she helped secure him this very important position. But he was in for a challenge from day one because France was in massive debt and they desperately needed money to keep financing the Seven Years' War that was then in progress. Yeah, so just an example of what Etienne was up against when he started his new position. He did a forecast for the government budget for the year 1760, the next year, and it was not good. So where there was a projected income of 286 million livres for the country, the expenses were expected to be over 500 million livres, so almost double. And there was a debt of almost 100 million livres to also attend to, so I do not envy this man trying to tackle this. No, not at all. Um, In an effort to battle these huge discrepancies, he came up with a series of reforms to reduce the finances of the royal household. And he also imposed a series of everyone's favorite taxes. (laughs) I personally don't have an issue with the taxes that he imposed, but other people did take issue with this. Yeah. I don't have a problem with it either. So he used the English methods he so greatly admired as a guide, and he proposed taxing the rich. There was just one small problem. Under the ancient regime, nobility had previously been exempt from taxes. That's right, exempt. So needless to say, this did not go over well, and he was not exactly well-liked. He was greatly criticized for his taxes and his frugality. Oh, you know, like trying to save money during wartime, this, you know, Totally unreasonable. (laughs) What was he thinking? (laughs) I just don't know, April. And despite all these extra measures he imposed, they were only projected to yield about 50 million livres. So only half of the debt owed. So he didn't exactly convince people to come around to his way of thinking. And in November of 1759, only eight months after being in his position, he was fired. But he moved to the French coast, so don't feel too bad for him. He lived out the rest of his days, and he died eight years later in 1767. Okay, so you're going to have to explain this to me, because how did this very short-lived French finance minister end up becoming this term or lend his name to the shape of fashion? Well, Silhouette's tenure might have been brief, but the distaste for him was not— And so before when I said the nobility was unhappy with him, that was a bit of an understatement. He was extremely disliked. He was so deeply unpopular and his thriftiness so wide known and despised that the phrase a la silhouette came to be associated with anything that was inexpensive and or forced to be more economical. Yeah, so Silhouette's contemporary, Louis-Sebastien Mercier, who is a wonderful journalist, and we have lots of fabulous um, primary source documentation from his hand mm-hmm. during the 18th century, he um, he put some insight into just how pervasive this term, Silhouette, became. Years later, he wrote, quote, From then on, everything took on the quote-unquote Silhouette look, and his name quickly became ridiculous. Fashions acquired an air of roughness and shoddiness that was quite intentional. Great coats had no pleats, breeches had no pockets, 
snuff boxes were made plain. Untreated wood portraits were drawn in profile on black paper. Following the line of shadow cast by a candle on a sheet of white paper. And in this way, the nation took its revenge, end quote. Yeah, and there it is. As Mercier attests to, Etienne's last name was applied to any number of inexpenses or economical things, and that included the increasingly popular and affordable art form of shadow portraiture. Yeah, and shadow portraiture is exactly what it sounds like. Um, The effect could be produced in any number of ways, but the most traditional method consisted of tracing the subject's shadow on a black backdrop, cutting this image out, and then pasting it onto a lighter background, usually white. Um, But there were other methods, which included painting directly on glass, ivory or plaster, but there was also the quote-unquote hollow cut method, um, and this used a negative of the image, which was traced out of light color paper and then pasted on a dark background. But these shades could range um, from anything from a simple trace of a, a profile of the subject's face to tracing their full body or even an entire scene that's complete inhabited by multiple people, multiple figures. Yeah, and the tracing of shadows was certainly not new to the 18th century. In fact, some sources I read even credit the first self-portrait ever recorded in history to a man named Gige from ancient Egypt who traced his portrait on a rock onto which his shadow had been projected by his campfire. Although legend has it that it was actually Etienne Silhouette himself who helped to bring this type of portraiture into the mainstream because he too was in the habit of tracing shadows. A journal article written two years after his death maintained, quote, One of this noble gentleman's main pastimes consisted of tracing a line around the shadow of a face in order to see its profile set against the wall. Several rooms in his chateau had walls covered with drawings of this type, known as silhouettes, after the creator, a name which has endured, end quote. In reality, I don't know how much Etienne himself had to do with bringing this shadow portraiture into the mainstream, Um, especially if you consider the fact that in 1758, so one year before Etienne's brief tenure as finance minister, a woman in England by the name of Dorothy Bradshaw was known to have been creating highly detailed shadow portraits. In England, these Portraits were known as, quote-unquote, shades or profiles before they were ever known as silhouettes. But it was during Etienne's tenure that this form of portraiture gained traction as an artistic practice and actually a profession. Yeah, and we have to remember that this is a pre-photography era, and so drawing or portraiture was the only way to capture someone's likeness. A person who wanted to share a representation of him or herself with someone, say, a keepsake for a lover, perhaps— could commission a miniaturist portrait painter, but this was really expensive. These shadow portraits, on the other hand, were very easy to produce, accurate, and cheap. Yeah, cheap. Apparently like Etienne. (laughs) Yeah. So as Mercier attests to, it was easy to add the term a la silhouette to this increasingly popular and expensive practice. The irony, perhaps, is that any association with the term with cheapness, frugality, lack of substance or the original Etienne himself, has more or less now been lost. Mm -hmm. And this has to do with the fact that it really developed into a viable artistic practice and profession by the end of the 18th century. The creators of these portraits were really skilled artisans, and the best of them could cut your likeness within a few minutes. 
And by the beginning of the 19th century, silhouette artists were established professionals in cities in France, in Great Britain, and in America. And they were really kind of an expected presence at any sort of social gathering, like a, like a party or a fair or even an outdoor cafe. And many of them, these, these silhouette artists, traveled extensively and they advertised their work in kind of like pop-up shops and local newspapers and mm-hmm. um, when whatever city that they were traveling to next. Yeah. And while some artists use scissors and paint to create these handmade silhouettes, after 1783, others used mechanical devices that aimed to create even greater precision and portraiture. And this included the ideograph, the delineator, but also the physiognotrace, which could produce a person's likeness and duplicate. And in 1802, an American man by the name of John Isaac Hawkins patented his own version of the machine and worked with Charles Wilson Peale to market it. Now, Peale was a Renaissance man. He was a soldier, an artist, a naturalist, an inventor, and he was also the founder of the Philadelphia Museum, which was one of the first museums in the United States. So he let Hawkins set up his device in his museum. And visitors could operate the device themselves, or they could pay Peel's slave, Moses Williams, to do it for them. And the device was so popular that 8,500 silhouettes were cut in just the first year. And Moses made so much money that he was able to buy his freedom. Yes, that's awesome. I like that story. Mm -hmm. Um, Shadow portraiture, the popularity of it, only increased as the 19th century progressed. And one of its most famous artists was this man named Auguste Edouard. He was born in France in 1789, and he worked in France before traveling his services abroad, taking his services abroad to England, Scotland, and America. And he is said to have cut thousands of these portraits um, in his lifetime, and many, many of them exist in museum and private collections all around the world. That many of his most famous subjects included the British nobility and the American presidents proved that this art form was actually embraced across the social strata during the 19th century. Yes, yeah, so perhaps it is thanks to the international success of Auguste and other French shadow artists that helped to popularize the use of the term silhouette outside of France. Because by the early 19th century, silhouette was being used by both American and British artists, but presumably to bring some French sophistication to their products. I mean, I highly doubt they were aware of its original connotations with economy and thriftiness or the distaste for its namesake. That seems to all have been lost. Right. Um, Shadow portraiture became so omnipresent throughout the 19th century, in fact, that the black shaded figure so familiar that people began to use this term silhouette beyond its original context. In other words, the word was applied to more than just a cutout likeness. According to the historian and sociologist Georges Vigarello in his book, The Silhouette, from the 18th century to the present day, which is lovely, I love this book, um, he says, quote, although the meaning of the word silhouette had expanded, the principles shaping bodily contours with all their linear characteristics and unique details, remained paramount, end quote. So, in other words, basically what he's saying is this term's relationship to physicality, and specifically the body, remained central to its meaning. Yeah, so even as silhouette portraiture fell out of favor by the end of the 19th century, thanks to the availability of photography, which replaced it, the term silhouette itself endured as a reference point for the body or the outline of the body, 
And so by the early 20th century, Silhouette had been officially co-opted by the fashion industry. But April and I could not stop there. We had to know when was the first time Vogue used this word. And we will find out more about that after a brief word from our sponsors. To find out the first time Vogue used the term silhouette, naturally, we went through every single issue of the magazine beginning with its first issue in 1892. Just kidding. We keyword searched the archive. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we're super lucky as fashion historians now to have keyword searchable archives. Um, Like, you know, the entire run of Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, Women's Wear Daily, and thousands of other magazines books, and newspapers are quite literally at our fingertips thanks to digitized archives online. And I just want to say it was not like this when I was in grad school. Um, you know, it, you know, back in ye olden days, aka <laughs> 10 years ago, um, we actually had to sit there with the physical magazine and flip through page by page, hoping that you were going to find something on the topic that you were researching. But you might not. Wow. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's thanks to these digital databases that we can tell you quite certainly that the first time the term silhouette was used in vogue was in their June 3rd, 1893 issue in a story by Charles Edward Barnes, which was called Consecrated Love. And in it, he wrote, quote, pausing an instant there, I heard a whisper in the stillness and strange to say, the iron door of the great kiln close and latch followed by the shuffle of feet, as someone dancing on one foot with hasty mounting. Then I crept even to the edge, just as the tall silhouette of the soldier spurred into an open space, and there met the wife seated imperiously, end quote. Wait, are you reading from the same Vogue magazine uh, that I... Yes <laughs> and no. <laughs> um, Vogue, when it launched, wasn't like what we think of as a traditional fashion magazine when it first started, it was more of a society magazine. And it included articles on fashion because, of course, that's part and parcel to high society. But mm-hmm. but really focused on society and the interests of New York's upper class and New York and American society. The main focus on women's fashion, this didn't come until much later, until around 1905, when the magazine was purchased by Condé Montrose Nast. I think that a lot of our listeners are going to recognize that name, Condé Nast. Yeah. (laughs) So while Silhouette might have appeared in Vogue magazine almost since its inception, it would be another 10 years before it was first used to describe the line and shape of fashion. An article in 1903 reads, quote, For use with one's white or transparent summer frock, there's no better solution than the white silk slip skirt, dominating the lines of the outer skirt and irreproachable and cut and fit. The silhouette is the thing and must be acquired at whatever cost if one would present a modish figure. But even after this, for the next few years, the term is still used quite sparingly and without any regularity in the publication. So Vogue's rival magazine, Harper's Bazaar, doesn't seem to have used the term silhouette in relation to fashion until sometime around 1908. And the term is still so novel to them at this time that they felt like they needed to put it in quotations for their readers. An article from that year reads, quote, The word which every extremist in the matter of new attire, maker or wearer, is conjuring with, and which figures in every headline and notes fashionable, is the 
quote-unquote silhouette. <laughs> it has a double meaning in French outline and shadow, but it also describes quite perfectly the thin, scant directoire gowns which outline the human figure. And that's where Harper's Bazaar ends that quote. So um, you listeners may remember that we discussed the debut of this high-waisted directoire silhouette in our Birth of the Modern episode. Um, and at that time, it was this very entirely new shape and line of fashion. And, and what better way to describe it than a term that denoted just that, you know, the shape and the line of the figure, a.k.a. the silhouette. Mm-hmm. And so in this way, silhouette proved itself to not only be the word used to describe the new lines and shape and fashion, but to distinguish new fashions from the old. And in a 1919 article entitled Watch Your Silhouette, Vogue instructs its readers to pull out an old photo album and ask themselves, don't you sometimes feel a little amused and startled by some of the pictures? Take, for instance, the silhouette you presented to the world some 20 years ago, when just at the shoulder line, you puffed out into two balloon-like affairs and then at the waistline went in like an hourglass, only to bulge out again in a full-flowing skirt. And do you remember the silhouette of 10 years later when you wore your hair in a large pompadour that flopped over your forehead and topped it with a larger hat that flopped still more? But it would be a tragedy if today one presented a silhouette that was frankly of another period. For several seasons, we have had the same silhouette, but those dull days are over. A fresh silhouette is coming. And by this time, there is no going back. (laughs) The silhouette was the shape of fashion. By the 1920s, the word was everywhere. You know, quote unquote, the silhouette moves, the two-tiered silhouette, the fluid silhouette, the afternoon (laughs) silhouette, the dramatic silhouette. You get the general idea. And while as fashion historians, Cass and I do try to avoid this trap of decadism, you know, like saying like in general, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, we all still have this habit of referencing and defining fashions of any given ever by the silhouette, you know, the the, the bustle silhouette of the 1870s, mm-hmm. crinoline silhouette of the 1850s. You know, conveniently, artists have also tracked the progression of fashion history using these silhouette cutout figures. So the word has really ended up becoming full circle. Except that it's never related to Etienne Silhouette um, anymore. (laughs) But I do have to wonder what he would make of all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Especially when you see the term silhouette being used in these very kind of niche instances, like, like, like an ad from 1929 for the quote-unquote cup form princess silhouette corset brassiere. I don't even know what that <laughs> <I> means, but... <laughs> I know. There's a lot going on there. Um, I mean, perhaps he would think it a coincidence. How could he ever guess that his legacy continues in so many ways today? Yeah. His haters' efforts to disgrace the poor guy actually ended up immortalizing him. It's pretty amazing. And next, we get to meet another gentleman whose legacy continues to endure today. If we were to cut a silhouette out of our next subject, literally Trace's shadow, despite being fully dressed, he would appear to be naked. Very muscular, but naked nonetheless. Yep. And that's because our next subject's legacy rests in the body-clinging garment that became his signature. And to this day, bears his name. We're going to meet Jules Leotard. Yeah, born in Toulouse, France in 1842, Jules' training as an acrobat started at a very young age. His father was a gymnastic teacher, and he had an indoor pool. 
And so it was over this pool that uh, Jules began first experimenting with aerial acrobatics. And apparently there were skylights above this pool from which ropes were hung so that they could be opened and closed. And this was a job that fell to the young leotard who used this opportunity to develop his athletic abilities and he would swing from rope to rope over the pool. Yeah, and because he was above the pool and, you know, he could fall fairly safely if anything went wrong. And he ended up becoming really, really good at climbing these ropes and he got more and more daring. And at some point he started working with a trapeze and developed an act. And once he was confident enough with it, he took it to the public and was almost immediately discovered um, by the circus director who was visiting from Paris. On November 12th, 1859, the wondrous leotard debuted his gravity-defying 12-minute aerial trapeze act at the Cirque Napoleon, and audiences were transfixed. Now, he did not invent the trapeze, but he is credited with inventing the flying trapeze. In other words, where before performers had worked on a stationary bar suspended above the ground, Jules used multiple bars and reportedly as many as five and from which he would swing from bar to bar, and sometimes he would even somersault from bar to bar. It was death-defying, and people loved it. As do I. I have another confession to make, Cass. Uh, the last <laughs> couple of years, I've actually taken up trapeze as a bit of a hobby. That is so cool. And I'm trust me, I'm like such a beginner. When I see some the things that other people in the studio are doing, I'm like, wow, okay. Um, but I'm very proud of myself because I did recently nail my first blind catch. Ooh, congratulations. Thanks. So what that means is, if any of you aren't familiar with that terminology, it means because of the, the nature of the trick that you're doing that you can't see your catcher until after you let go of the bar. This sounds terrifying. <laughs> Basically, you just have to put in some serious faith and let go um, and hope for the best. Um, and yeah, you know, we still work over nets. It's, it's going to be okay. But yeah, uh, th this is this is this is not about my aerial exploits. Um, let's get back to Jules. Um, <laughs> because in 1861, Jules took his act to London and he performed there to great acclaim at the Alhambra Music Hall. And he would continue to perform in London and across Europe throughout the 1860s. And he became known as the king of trapeze. And he really elevated this uh, practice of trapeze into a performance art. You know, he did things that no other performance dared to do before him. Um, and, and, but of course, you know, many people would, would, would attempt to do them afterwards. Yes, of course. Including one April Callahan. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not at that level yet. <laughs> not even close. In 1867, a British songwriter by the name of George Laybourne wrote a song about Jules entitled The Flying Trapeze. But the song has less to do with Jules' aerial talents and more to do with, well, let's take a listen. The song was recorded in 1934 by comedian Walter O'Keefe, and we actually have a snippet of it here for you today. From the bar and the people below, and one night he smiled on my love. She blew him a kiss. And she hollered, bravo, as he hung by his nose up above. He floats through the air with the greatest speed. Hang by his nose or schnozzle. His actions are graceful, all gills. He does please them, I love. He's purloined away. It's a little scratchy, but that last part says, quote, his actions are graceful, 
All girls does he please. My love, he has purloined away. So this <laughs> song is about Jules stealing another dude's girl. <laughs> and she actually joins the circus and performs with him. And we don't know how much truth can be found in this song or the lyrics for this song, but one could suspect that he was perhaps quite the ladies' man because we know for sure that Jules had many female and also male admirers. Yeah, just listen to this article from Chambers Journal written in 1861, quote, Nothing can exceed the grace and elegance of Leotard's motions. No ballet dancing can compare with it for beauty. When he has climbed the little ladder that leads from the springboard to the gallery and standing upon that elevation has the longest trapeze handed up to him, he presents a model for a sculptor, the mighty chest, the muscular arms and wrists. Now he draws a long breath, grasps the stirrups firmly and projects himself with a great impetus into space. He swings right across the vast arena. End quote. But the author of the article does not stop there. He writes, surely never before were human muscles so schooled. In 1891, 20 years after Jules's death, the same journal, and I'm going to assume the same journalist, uh, was still expounding <laughs> upon his assets. Um, perhaps a little bit of an obsession. I'm just going to throw that a out A little there. bit of a crush. Yeah. Quote, Jules Leotard was a splendid specimen of manly beauty, a perfect figure united to a strikingly handsome face. I just get a, I get a kick out of this. Oh, yeah. You know what this reminds me of? Have you seen um, My Daguerreotype Boyfriend? No. Uh, okay. If you haven't seen this yet, please run. Don't walk. <laughs> it's this amazing Tumblr blog where people can submit old photos of hotties from history. Ooh. Yeah, it's 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 pretty incredible. I don't think it's active anymore, but the the whole database of it still exists. You know, hotties like Jules apparently, um who liked to show off his assets to their full effect, um and he did so with this costume that he developed that fit him like a second skin, revealing all of his highly toned muscles. <laughs> Actually, this costume, it, it leaves zero to the imagination, if you get my drift. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I get your drift. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm sure he probably did this partially, intentionally, you know, to indulge the desires of his fans. Mm -hmm. But this one-piece knit garment was also actually developed by Jules for a practical purpose. Um, and due to the nature of his performance, he really needed a costume that was flexible and did not hinder any of his movements. Um, you know, any kind of extra trimmings or accessories or inflexible material could have been physically dangerous for him. So Jules called this garment a mayo, which is um, typically a word um, in French used for swimsuit. And no doubt he based its design on the swimsuits that he grew up wearing in his father's swimming pool. And his mayo range in style um, and color. It could be black. It could be sleeveless with shorts. It could be a white long sleeve or long leg two-piece garment. Um, over this two-piece garment, he usually sometimes wore an extra pair of overshorts. But in 1862, London's Morning Post, the newspaper wrote, quote, The great attraction continues to be the wondrous leotard whose trapeze performances have brought the species of entertainment into fashion. But little did they know that so too would the garment of this beloved performer come into fashion. Women's fashion. And we're going to talk more about that after a word from our sponsors. Sponsors. 
Before Jules's Mayo was fashionable, it was practical, adopted by ballerinas as part of their rehearsal ensemble. Although, April, I tried really hard, but I could not really track down when this garment was adopted exactly by ballerinas. But it seems to have been somewhere around the turn of the century, and this was a period when the standards of dance costume was becoming a little bit more relaxed. Maybe one of our listeners knows more about that history and would like to email us. Yes. So decades later, in the 1940s, the famous New York City choreographer George Balanchine would become famous for his so-called leotard ballets. Because he wanted a modern costume to accompany his modern ballets, he stripped the ballerina costume of its typical pomp and circumstance, and he brought the rehearsal costume to the stage. But while Balanchine might have been one of the first to take the leotard from the rehearsal to the ballet stage, who took it from rehearsal to women's fashion? To find out, we once again turn to those digitized archives. In Harper's Bazaar, the first use of the word leotard appears in 1931 for an ad for clothing for a company called Nat Lewis. A white one-piece garment with shorts is illustrated next to the text, quote, to be worn under a white or pastel bathing suit, the quote-unquote leotard is in white jersey. The garment is very similar in style to that which Jules Leotard wore, so I can see how the comparison would have been very, very easy to make for the company. The direct connection to Jules is further alluded to in the title of the garment as Leotard, which is in the ad both capitalized and also put in quotation marks. Yeah, in 1933, another version of a quote-unquote leotard with a capital L was presented by the California clothing firm Hollywood Silk Mills, later Maps of Hollywood, and the company was owned by Mr. and Mrs. Barnes, and Mrs. Barnes, whose stage name was Mabs Ryden, was a dancer for Metro Goldwyn, and she recognized the need for practical dance attire, and thus she invented a new type of underwear known as We Fit Panties, quote, a tight-fitting panty which would not ride up or cut. Alongside her We Fit Panty, the company also debuted the all-in-one leotard, quote, this has the wee fit panty bottom and decidedly uplift bandeau made in the various elastic constructions and in glove silk. It fits like a second skin and is particularly popular with stage and screen folk. Wee fits and leotards are offered in white, tea rose, pink, and black, end quote. So Mavs of Hollywood would continue to promote its leotards into the 1960s, but their version was really meant to be worn as a sort of undergarment. So Cass, question for you. Which color of the Wii Fit leotard will you be having? <laughs> I will take one of each. I think, uh, I didn't know that was an option because I was going to say as New Yorker, <laughs> black is the obvious <laughs> answer for me. <laughs> so the leotard appears to have made its way into mainstream fashion that you could see, not an undergarment. Thanks to the visionary fashion editors of Harper's Bazaar and their editorial, The Leotard Idea, in January 1943. So the article did not present any actual garments, but in fact encouraged designers to create them. Quote, it's a new idea leading towards the 21st century and the cosmic costumes of Flash Gordon's Supergirl, they wrote. It's an old idea based on every ballet designer's traditional rehearsal costume, the two-piece jersey leotard that can be made in any color from black to turquoise blue, end quote. And they go on to make suggestions on how it can be worn under a sleeveless shirt, an evening slacks or a skirt perhaps, or how about leaving it unadorned, adding, 
Under the leotard, you wear nothing. Ooh, scandalous. Nothing. I know. Don't worry. They follow that up with, or a garterless panty girdle and a brassiere. Yeah, and at least one designer answered the call, and that was sportswear innovator and American fashion design pioneer Claire McArdle, who is one of my all-time favorite designers, and we promised to do an episode on her soon. Mm-hmm. But McArdle created these um, two-piece, long-sleeved, and full-legged leotards that appeared in Harper's Bazaar seven months later in an editorial entitled It's Something. It says, quote, in January, we tossed out the idea, a new silhouette based on the leotard. Hold the phone. Okay. I, you get what I'm saying? Is, you get where I'm yeah. going here with this? Etienne Et- and Jules have finally met dress listeners. Yeah. So they're talking about the silhouette and the leotard in the same sentence. <laughs> <laughs> if only in this sentence, they are two subjects of finally met. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the article goes on to say, it says, in January, we tossed out an idea, a new silhouette based on the leotard or ballet school tights. The New Yorker ribbed us, but fashion followed us. And this month, we present leotards for the college girl. It's something to feel the new atmosphere of college and to dress for it with timing and precision. To be the first to wear the leotard under your wool jersey jumper. A silhouette new from the ground so new and bold was this idea of the leotard that Claire McArdle's designs made the cover of Life magazine the following month. Yeah, and I have to say, even the image itself, this photograph that's on the cover of Life, it's pretty uh, right? forward-thinking for its yeah. time. Um, because one of the young models is wearing just the horizontal striped two-piece leotard all by itself. In 1943. <laughs> all by itself. Um, and and, and her, her friend that's in the photo with her, she she's wearing the leotard underneath a dress. The magazine wrote, quote, leotard is a new word in fashion parlance. Webster's unabridged dictionary defines it as a short, close-fitting, sleeveless garment cut low in the neck and in front and gusseted between the legs. It is worn by acrobats and aerial performers, Although, writes Life magazine, the description does not exactly fit the strange-looking garments shown on the page and on the cover. Agreed, Life magazine, these versions of leotards definitely resemble long johns, but they do conform to the body-skimming ideals of Jules Leotard's leotards. So, however, as the magazine also demonstrates in another image, um, other designers besides McArdle were also creating garments closer to what the Webster's dictionary definition is, resembling what you and I might call a leotard today. After Harper's Bazaar's leotard declaration, Vogue had reportedly completely ignored this new trend, but Mademoiselle magazine did pick it up. In fact, that magazine took it a step further, promoting short leotards, quote, smooth as second skin, and and these were supposed to be worn um, beneath long or short skirts. And the leotard was apparently still a relatively new phenomenon when over a decade later, in 1957, the Daily Mirror printed this small tidbit in a column called, What Is It? Quote, I have just read a report in a film magazine that quotes Jane Mansfield as saying, I always wear a leotard. Leotards are much more sexy than the all nude. The Daily Mirror goes on to say, dive in the book, boys, and tell us what the heck is a leotard? (laughs) That's hilarious. I love that. Like, it's still not a, like, defined term in, like, almost by the 1960s. Yeah. Um. So by the late 50s, the early 60s, the leotard has finally hit its stride. 
Capizio, the dancewear company, made Leo tights in 1958, saying, quote, the offstage rage in leotards and tights. Sophisticated young ladies were wearing leotards under their slacks or their skirts, and the quote-unquote youth Quakers of the 1960s, they adopted them for any number of body-revealing ensembles. And by this time, the leotard had developed into the version that we most associate with it today, the kind of like cut-up-over-the-hips-skimming version. Which reminds me that while fashion has been experimenting with leotards, um, yet it had also become a staple of athletic wear, especially for gymnasts, um, and, and, and they are probably the athletes most associated with the leotard today. The popularity of the leotard kind of came and went throughout the 1970s, but we can all probably guess the decade in which it had its heyday, and I'm talking about the 1980s. I mean, because what was the what were the 80s without the leotard? Right? I mean, who doesn't have the image of a blue or purple leotard wearing Jane Fonda impressed in their memories for all time? I mean, and mine actually is Irene Cara and Flashdance. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> the leotard was hot. In 1980, Cosmopolitan declared leotards break loose in a three-page article. The magazine extolled leotards as endlessly diverse in its variety, but always flattering and cheap with an exclamation point. Your ever versatile bodysuit is a sure starter at the onset of this brand new decade and a comer for the rest of the 80s too. Designers such as Norma Kamali, Betsy Johnson have taken the leotard out of that dusty gym locker and made it into chic day and nighttime wear. And of course, today... As we're speaking, the leotard trend is back. Or maybe did it ever really leave? I mean, it's just kind of been lingering. (laughs) Um, Although we all kind of refer them to it more as a bodysuit today. But basically, regardless, the leotard has really proved itself to be this recurring trend that doesn't appear to be going away anytime soon. Um, And if it does for a brief moment, I have no doubt that it will be back. (laughs) So I guess I just realized... We know now what became of the leotard, Cass, but what happened to the man? What happened to Jules Leotard? Well, sadly, he met his untimely death at the age of 28. Uh-oh. One of his stunts? No, actually, surprisingly, although he did have many brushes with death throughout his career and many injuries, but in the end, it was a case of smallpox that he contracted while working in Spain Aww. that secured his untimely end. So, yeah, he died far too young. His legacy does indeed live on Jules Leotard, as does that of Etienne Silhouette, whether we realized it or not before we started this episode. <laughs> so that does it for us today. But we do hope you consider both of these men's legacies next time you get dressed. Thanks, as always, to our awesome production team at How Stuff Works, our executive producer, Holly Fry, and producers, Noel, Brown and Casey Pegram. For images illustrating each week's episode, please follow us on Instagram at dressed underscored podcast. This is also our Twitter handle, and you can follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. And as always, we post additional readings on our website, dressedpodcast.com. And please feel free to write to us at dressed at howstuffworks.com. <laughs>